God's great love for us is shown certainly in every action he does, but nowhere more so than his providing for us his word. Let us hear him as he speaks to us this morning. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the foremost of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And now to the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear Father, we come before you asking for your blessing at this time. You have blessed us, we believe, with your word. You have blessed us with this opportunity to worship. And now, Lord, we want to be blessed again by the power, the transforming power of your word. Make it so in our hearts, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Please be seated. Grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, looking at verses 12 through 17 today. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We began a couple of weeks ago looking at 1 Timothy specifically as a message about truth and godliness that is spoken for us today. This is a message of truth and godliness for Hebron Church as we explore what it means for us to be faithful and to study the book of 1 Timothy together. 1 Timothy here speaking about faith, truth, and godliness for our very lives in this regard. Couple of week, or last week, uh, the section opens. We looked at the very first paragraph, basically, of the body of this epistle, where Paul is stressing to Timothy the importance of true doctrines, sound teachings. And he warns against what it means to have any different kind of teaching. Stay away from anything, avoid any kind of bad teaching, anything that would take you away from that center core truth of the gospel message. Paul has emphasized and talked about the importance of maintaining truth in everything that happens within the worship service. Now, I have never been uh, struggled with addiction, with drugs, uh, or with alcohol. Uh, that just has not been part of my background, my life. But I have seen the devastation in which it does in families, the struggles. I understand the scriptural speaking to those very issues. And so I feel like I can speak directly to the struggle that people have when they deal with addiction to drugs and alcohol. I personally have never been in a war zone, but it is easy to see and easy to imagine the human suffering, the trauma, the difficulty that is going on over in Ukraine, and it's easy for me to be able to stand here and proclaim to you and talk to you about what it means for us to be peacemakers and for us to be people who seek the Lord and to seek peace in this world. My kids 
were blessed in that they were never really the victim of a lot of bullying in school. But it is easy to see the suffering and the heartbreak of parents whose children go through that demeaning experience of being persecuted or teased, picked on at school. And it's easy for me to come alongside and to seek God's comfort and wisdom for those parents as they deal with that kind of a suffering. I have never been in a war zone. I have never personally been addicted to drugs or to alcohol. My kids themselves were not personally bullied, but I don't have any difficulty speaking to these issues because of the truthfulness that is there. However, all of us know that what it's like to have somebody address us about those particular issues who has that personal experience, who comes from the background of having been addicted to drugs or being in a war zone or having suffered through their children being picked on or any other myriad of ideas. We all know the rhetorical value of having somebody say, look, here are some struggles that I've been through, and to share that person, not just the theory, not just the truthfulness of the effect, but also the personal impact of that effect, we all know that that's a powerful way of communicating the message. Paul has opened this letter, 1 Timothy, by saying, listen, avoid false teaching. Stay away from any kind of different doctrine. It is damaging, it is destructive. The key thing that Paul wants Timothy to realize as he works with the church in Ephesus is that there is false teaching out there and it will do great damage to the church. And he expects Timothy to listen to him. And then in this second section of the epistle, we are blessed that that Paul then says, listen, I am not just telling you to avoid false doctrine, I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to show you what it's like for me to have experienced the truth of the gospel and what that truth means after I was caught in the falsehood. This is Paul being a great teacher saying, look, here's the truth of the matter. We have to stand for the truth of the gospel in all things. And now here's the personal application of it. Look at my life. If you look at the opening couple of paragraphs, they're filled with commands to Timothy or discussions of what they are like, the false teachers are like. But when you look at this paragraph, it is filled with Paul's personal pronoun, I, I, I. This is about Paul's own experience with the gospel. If 1 Timothy is a letter of truth and godliness for us, it comes not just as a theoretical description of what we should be about. It comes with that real life experience that we have and that Paul has. And you can see the experience of this real life experience clash uh, that Paul has between the false doctrine and the true doctrine as he describes three different things. He talks about what it means three different ways that he has been thankful to God for what God has done. He talks about three different ways of which he used to be in the past when he was caught in by the false doctrines of this world. And then he describes three things in which he has been blessed by the Lord. Three things in which he's thankful for. Look at verse 12 here for a second. 
Paul writes to Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I thank God, now what? He thanks God first for strength. Uh, I have to say, as a pastor uh, who gets an opportunity to talk to many of you at times of difficulty, this is a common thing. It is not odd for us in times of difficulty and struggle Realizing that God holds the cards, that he's the one that shapes our futures, we don't know what he has in front of us, and so most often what I am asking for on your behalf, what I hear you asking for very often is, Lord, grant us strength. Grant us what we need to get through this trial, this difficulty. Bless us with the strength that we need. That's a great prayer. We're encouraged to pray it. Paul here takes a bit of a twist on that, though. He thanks God for that strength. I confess to you that as often as I pray that God would give me strength, I do not always remember to thank him at the end of the trial. Here Paul starts out as he begins to say, look, I've been caught by the false teaching, and I want to start by thanking God for strength. Now part of the problem is We don't always know when it's God's strength that has carried us through a difficulty or when it's just our own power. Sometimes, you know, I get through a struggle and it's easy to say, well, that was kind of, you know, I gripped my teeth, I bared down, I did what I had to in order to get through the struggle. Of course, as soon as you say it like that, you know how foolish that is. Any strength I had, any strength, you have ever exhibited has been a gift from God. And so why is it? Or let's just say it positively. Can we become more and more people like Paul whose first thought is to thank God for the strength that he has already carried us through? I thank God for the strength who has judged me faithful. So first he's thanking God for strength. Second, he thanks God that he has judged him faithful. Now, I don't know how that sounds in your ear, but I think to a lot of us that immediately sounds that God's looking at the world and he sees Paul and says, oh, look, there's a faithful guy, and we know that's not the case. Okay, that doesn't conform to anything that Paul has ever taught us in the Scriptures. It doesn't conform to the rest of the Scriptures that God kind of looks around and says, oh, there's a guy who's faithful, I'm going to use Paul. That's most clearly not the spot. As a matter of fact, in a couple of phrases, Paul is going to stress the fact that he has been unfaithful, that he has been trapped by unbelief, that his whole life has been contrary to this faith. So why does he say, I thank God that he has judged me faithful? I think it's the same way in which we understand all of Scripture and the references here. This is God, this is Paul saying, I thank God because he has declared me to be faithful. He has made me faithful. Yes, he's judged me to be faithful. Why? Because he made me so. That's worthy of thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that you have given me strength that you have made me, you have, uh, you have determined that I would be faithful, and then that you have called me into his service, appointing me to his service. Now, for Paul, that's got a specific focus, and we all kind of know that. Paul's an, uh, an apostle. He was called to do these long missionary journeys. He was called to communicate to us the, the word of God. For Paul, that service is a particular idea. 
But this is a message of truth and godliness for Hebron Church. We are not simply reflecting here upon Paul's call into service. We are acknowledging, I hope, the call that every one of us has into service. And I don't just mean service like preaching the Word of God or service like serving on a committee here at the church or service like sharing the gospel with your neighbor or service like what the mobilization team is putting forward for our congregation. Yes, we all need to be involved in this ministry that Bruce talked about earlier. The service that every one of you have is that calling that you exhibit every day if that's to be a mother, if that's to be an assembly line worker, if that is to be a student, if that's to be an educator, an engineer, whatever it is God has called you to, that's the service that he deserves thanks for. Have you thanked the Lord every single day? for whatever strength you have, for giving you the faith that you need, and for the service that you are called into. This is a natural consequence for Paul of being exposed to the truthful doctrines of our Lord. If he experiences truth, if he experiences the real doctrines of life and responds by saying, First and foremost, I'm thankful for strength. I'm thankful for faith. I'm thankful for service. So should every single one of us. He starts by saying how thankful he is, and then beginning in verse 13, he moves on to say, because think about what I was like. What was my life like when I was caught by the false doctrines of this world? What was it like before I held on to sound teaching, sound doctrine about the grace of our Lord? What does he say? Though formally, verse 13, formally I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Do you hear the three things there? Formerly, I used to be a blasphemer. Now, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy technically is when we curse God. If you curse God, you are blaspheming him. Okay, now, Paul, if you know anything about Paul's history prior to him becoming a believer, Paul was a Pharisee. He was religious beyond description. It's really hard to imagine that anywhere in Paul's history that he actually blasphemed the Lord. Well, that he actually cursed God. Well, blasphemy has a larger breadth. I, I don't know, I could probably speak to every one of you here in this room, and I don't know how many of you will be able to identify a time where you've actually cursed God. God. I curse you because. My guess is that none of us have really done that. So maybe we're not blasphemers. But maybe blasphemy has a larger breadth than just technically cursing God. Perhaps what Paul is getting at here is that when he was persecuting the church before he was a believer, 
He was speaking untruths about God. He was speaking falsely about who God was. He was not accurate when he was describing the things of the Lord. Perhaps when he talks about blasphemy, Paul's not so much here talking about the formalistic cursing of God, but rather any inaccurate speech when it comes to God. Kel and I were watching a movie. It was one of these old ones. I think it must have been, actually, I should have looked this up. It must have been done in the 80s or something. And I have the greatest, fondest memories of this movie. You know, it was one of the, it's classic male, you know, uh, bang, bang, shoot them up kind of a thing. And it came on TV, and I'm just reveling in it. I think, oh, this is wonderful, until I start listening to it. The language was terrible, and I sat and I thought, I know I used to listen to this. I used to watch this movie many times. I was quoting the lines before they came, driving Kelly crazy. Um, But, you know, I knew this movie. Why is it that the language never bothered me before? Well, I'm hoping, some of it's because I'm getting old, I'm hoping some of it is because I'm simply getting more sensitive to people not handling the truth of the Lord correctly. Now, what I'm suggesting here for all of us is that every time we speak something not careful about our God, we are blaspheming him. And I suspect that we do it a whole lot more often than what we are conscious of. Anytime we are speaking about our Lord and we are not standing solidly upon the truth, we are blaspheming our Lord. And Paul says not only was he a blasphemer, but he was also a persecutor. Now, again, specifically for Paul, this is an easy one to identify. He persecuted the church. If you're unfamiliar with this, you can go back and read uh, in the opening chapters 7, 8, and 9 of Acts. Uh, You will see that he was a persecutor of the church. So here he's out persecuting the church. He's actually putting people to death. And so when Paul here identifies what it means, man, when I was caught in false doctrine, when I wasn't thinking right, I was a blasphemer, and I actually was overseeing people die. Once again, I uh, suspect that not many of us in this room are going to be able to identify with Paul as a persecutor, actually somebody who oversaw the death of other people. But Paul is talking so much broader than that. Yes, he persecuted the church, but he's talking about any actions in his life that go contrary to the Word of God anything that he does, that we're standing him against the church, against the truth of the gospel, identified him as a persecutor. I don't think Paul's just exaggerating. I think he's using language here that we should be thinking of when we evaluate our own lives. Do we blaspheme because we talk of God sometimes without knowledge, without maintaining, holding that which is true? Could it be true that our little sins could be evaluated as persecuting the truthfulness of God just when we do little minor things that don't really matter that much, that we're persecuting God? Paul says that he is an insolent fellow or an insolent opponent. 
Okay, what the heck is an insolent opponent? Uh, you're trying to capture this idea of, uh, of, an, of a, a supreme arrogance. Paul is saying here, I was overwhelmingly arrogant, and that overwhelming arrogance demonstrated itself in violent tendencies in all, all of my life. So Paul is saying, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and then I had this overconfident arrogance that just led me to rule over people, to just barrel on top of them, that kind of a thing. Notice what Paul is saying. I don't think Paul's identifying three problems here, that he's a blasphemer, that he was a persecutor, and that he was arrogant. I think what Paul is doing is he's saying, in my words, in my actions, and in my thoughts, I was separated from God. Paul here is identifying that which he is separate, that, that which means to be captured when he is trapped in the false teachings. Well, what happens when God steps in, when the truth comes, when sound doctrine, sound teaching is brought to Paul? In the middle of verse 13, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in belief and the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with faith and love. Do you hear the triplet in there? The grace of our Lord. What's the response then that Paul has by the grace, the doctrine of our Lord, the truth of the statement, first grace abounded to me. Now, we talk a lot about grace here. And we know what it means. Some of us have heard it at least enough times that we have this idea. It's unmerited favor. It's when God responds good to us when we absolutely do not deserve it. But the Scriptures never talk about grace in little bits. It's always this overflowing, you know, my cup overflows kind of a thing. Here, it is grace that is unbounded, that is overflowing. Paul has in mind the, um, the Nile River. Uh, the Nile River was the, in the Nile Valley, the delta was there. It was the most agriculturally rich place in the entire Roman Empire. There was enough grain that was grown right there in the Nile River that it could feed, and it did feed Rome for centuries, all of Rome uh, for uh, decades at least, let's say. Uh, it's a most wealthy place, and it grew crops every year for one reason and one reason alone that the Nile banks would overflow every year with water. And because it overflowed, then up came the grain. If there was no overflowing, there would, no be, there would be no grain. And Paul uses that very image to say, God has overflowed my life with grace. And because it overflows, up pops what? Faith and love. Faith and love. When confronted by the truth of the gospel, Paul says, what happened here? Grace overflows and up pops truth, faith, and love. Remember, this is what he spoke of in verse 5 when he said, what's the goal of emphasizing sound doctrine? It's not to make people feel bad because they teach things that are wrong. It's not to wag our finger at them. It's not to be haughty. It's not to say we understand better. The goal of this is love showing itself in faith. And here Paul says, that's what exactly happened to me. 
When I heard the truth of the gospel, so too then up came grace that overflowed, and because of that overflow, faith and love. And it just begs us to self-evaluate. Is my life marked by overflowing grace where you just can't help but up pop faith and love? If faith and love just aren't popping up, maybe it's because we don't realize the overflow of grace and we just think of it as just small and little in our lives. What is this truth, the sound doctrine? Sound doctrine in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Four quick things here. This is a trustworthy saying. Now, immediately in our ears, at least in my ears, that means that it's dependable, it's reliable, it's, it, it's an accurate statement. I think that's absolutely the case. But remember, if it's trustworthy, it doesn't just mean that it's accurate. It means that it is worthy of your trust. It is worthy for you to put your faith in. It is worthy for you to build your life around. If you build your life around that simple core truth of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, shouldn't everyone see that? Shouldn't everyone be able to tell if indeed it's a trustworthy saying for you that you are putting your trust and dependency upon it? It deserves full acceptance. Now, partially that means that it deserves all of our acceptance, that when I accept it, I don't accept it in part. I embrace the whole thing, and I give myself fully to it, full acceptance. But Paul has got this constant push in his letters. It's something that we often miss. He is concerned that we realize that the gospel is not just for the Jewish people. The gospel is not just for the 20th first century white Americans. The gospel is not just for people that look like me. The gospel is a universal message, and nothing changes when you take the gospel from this place to this place to this culture to this people to this folks with this kind of a background to people that think like this, how wrong they are, people who act like this, how dumb that is. It doesn't matter. This is the gospel message that deserves full universal acceptance. This gospel message covers everything and everyone and touches on all. That's the truth of the gospel message. That's sound doctrine, that it is deserving of full, universal acceptance. What is the statement? Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. So easy, so straightforward. Numerous times in the Gospels, Jesus describes his own mission exactly that way. I came to save sinners. I've come to ransom those who are lost. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That is the shortest, closest phrasing of the truth, the sound doctrine that you can imagine articulating. Then why is it? that all so often we veer from that central core message. 
There is so much for the church to be doing. There is so much pain and suffering in this world. There is so much injustice and unrighteousness for this church to speak into, to serve at, to work at. There's so many things that have to happen in my family. There's so many things that have to happen in your family. There's godliness, holiness to be pursued. And in the midst of it, it is so easy to lose sight of that which is central and core. Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. There's nobody that's going to be able to evaluate your life like you can. But you've got to ask yourself, in my passion for doing what is right, in my passion for studying the Scriptures, for going to church, for being involved, for reaching out to my neighbors, for doing good deeds, for living rightly, have I lost sight of the central core message that it's about Jesus Christ, the work of Christ in salvation? Fourth, first, it's trustworthy. Second, it's universal. Third, it's about Jesus Christ. Fourth, it's personal. Paul says here, he is, Christ has come to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, is Paul really the worst sinner that has ever, first off, how would he know that? You know, was, is he worse than Nero, the emperor at that time? Butchered people? Is he worse than Stalin, Pol Pot, Adolf Hitler? Well, I suspect Paul here is using some literary license. He's, he is speaking, you know, perhaps exaggerating a little. I think what Paul is doing is what has happened to me, and I bet it's happened to you. When the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes, and you see yourself as the man or woman who is separated from God, apart from Jesus Christ, when you realize that you really are a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant person, when you see yourself as you really are, you can't imagine anything worse. Under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we are overwhelmed by our need for that very clear gospel message that Jesus Christ has come into this world to save sinners. Where does this lead Paul? How does, how, how, what does this gospel message, this truth message lead him? Does it lead him to a conviction of a better life? Does it lead him to being no longer a blasphemer, a persecutor, and so Where does it lead him? where it must lead every one of us. Here's the greatest evaluation tool. In your life, when you sit and think about the coming of Jesus Christ into this world to save sinners, of whom you really are the worst, how do you respond? This is how Paul responds. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, 
Jesus Christ has come into this world to save sinners, of whom I am indeed the worst. And because of that, to the King of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord Jesus, we do give you the thanks and praise that you deserve. Lord, we do lift to you the honor and glory that is yours. We are overcome with the desire to draw closer to the immortal, the invisible God, our only Savior, Jesus Christ, who came into this world to save sinners. Yes, Lord, even me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.